Voice of Choice podcast ad paid for by Californians for School Choice. Committee major funding from Dale Broom. Trapped by their zip codes, the poorest children are denied access to a quality education that will enable them to break the cycle of poverty and take their rightful place in our society. This is real systemic racism. It's time to put school choice on the ballot. Hello, this is Mike Alexander, president of Californians for School Choice. Under the Educational Freedom Act initiative, parents, not zip codes, will decide where their children go to school. Parents wanting to leave the disastrous public school system will receive a yearly tuition credit of $14,000 per child to attend a private or religious school of their choice and save any money left over for college, vocational training, or other qualified expense. To sign the petition and learn how you can help, go to californiaschoolchoice.org. That's californiaschoolchoice.org. And remember, it's your kids, your money, and your choice. Committee major funding from Dale Broom. Welcome to the California School Choice Radio Network, hosted by Mike Alexander, the lead proponent of the Educational Freedom Act Initiative and chairman of Californians for School Choice. Join us to learn how to put parents, not politicians, in charge of our children's education. And now, here's your host, Mike Alexander, the voice of choice in California education. All right, everybody. Let me take this opportunity to personally wish you a Merry Christmas. And don't tell me Christmas is over because today, January 6th, is the Feast of the Magi, the Feast of the Epiphany. And millions of people throughout the world are celebrating this day as Christmas, which is the last day of Christmas. And uh, we're happy to be with you here. And of course, a happy new year to everyone as we kick off our year here in episode three of The Voice of Choice. And also, we want to let you know that we're in the most important 90 days now of the signature drive to qualify the Educational Freedom Act. Chances are, if you're on this broadcast, you already know that we are the Californians for School Choice and the California School Choice Foundation, who are the, and I'm Mike Alexander, one of the lead proponents of the Educational Freedom Act, which, as you know, has four key features. First of all, this is going to create an education savings account for any K-12 child on the request of the parent or guardian. Number two, into that account annually will be a credit held in trust, never touched by the parents, credited annually that child's share of basic California school funding. And that currently is $14,000 per year. It'll be adjusted upwards from there with basic school funding. Number three, you, the parent, the guardian, your children's uh, uh, parents, if your grandparents or your children's will dictate where that money goes, they can direct that money to a participating accredited private or parochial school of their choice, not of the school board or the zip code. And number four, keep any money left over for college vocational training, or other qualified educational expense. This bill, the Educational Freedom Act, is unique. It's simple. It's the best that there is. And yes, to all of you who are wondering out there, homeschoolers are covered. Um, you know, Feel free to send me any questions that you have. Mike at schoolchoice.org. And that is the website for all of you, schoolchoice.org. Now, in today's episode, we're going to have as our special guest here in just a few moments, the uh, well-known uh, author and classicist, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, who will be with us to discuss his most recent book, The Dying Citizen, uh, D-Y-I-N-G, The Dying Citizen. I won't tell you what the book is about. We'll let Professor Hansen do that. But it's important for you to know that we will be discussing school choice and education and enculturation as it relates to the office of citizen, which, as we know, is the most important office in this country. That's you. And that's why you need to get involved. So if you are not, if you've not already signed the, uh, the petition, then I would ask that you find a place to do it. Go to our website, californiaschoolchoice.org. Sign up. Let us know who you are. And we will 
uh, keep you informed. We'll send you a petition. We'll have somebody get in contact with you. Now, this is uh, quite simply, you know, the hottest issue in the country. As I was coming down the hall, I was talking to the station manager here at KRLA, or was it 870, the answer right here in Glendale, California. I was talking with one of the managers and uh, we're going to, I hope, get on uh, Dennis Prager here soon. And the question was, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a nationwide show. What application does this have? And the short answer is very quick. It is the hottest issue in the country. And one of the cities that he mentioned was Chicago. And I found that ironic uh, because one of our old friends, uh, and I put that in large quotations, is David Axelrod. And he's a Chicago guy. And he was uh, Barack Obama's chief strategist. Yes, that Obama. And he said recently regarding the the threats of the teachers union to resign, his quote was here recent. The Chicago teachers union is about to vote to walk out rather than return to classrooms amid the Omicron surge. I hope, he said, I hope every teacher reads this column, what our kids have suffered through long absences from classrooms already has had a devastating impact, unquote. In other words, even a heavy-duty political operative like David Axelrod, a Democrat, he gets it. And that's why this issue of school choice is really a nonpartisan issue. Everybody agrees that our children need a decent uh, education. And, and this, this issue has aroused parents across the nation, but particularly here in California, where our schools are 48th in the nation. And, and it's ironic to hear uh, uh, some of the objections, very few, that we already that we get frequently, and that is that this proposed school choice initiative will somehow take money away from the schools uh, and destroy them. Well, first of all, I hope it does take away money. Unfortunately, uh, uh, for them, only competition will change that. And here in California, for them to complain, the school choice will ruin the schools. The proper response is, hey, you already did that. You know, we're already at 48. How far down do we have to go to be ruined? Well, the answer is, is that parents want uh, uh, charge of their children's education and the Educational Freedom Act puts parents back in charge. And we make sure that going forward, the money follows the child rather than the zip code or the politician or the school board or the union. That money will now follow the child. That's why it's perfectly legal and constitutional, and uh, and it is the right thing to go. And when people ask me, say, what is the justification of this? How, how you know, What are your arguments for school choice? Uh, uh, those of you who are working with us, I invite you to, to respond in this fashion. Would you mind telling me first, sir, what the argument is for a system that is a monopoly that takes 40% of our state budget, takes all the kids at financial gunpoint, herds them into failing schools where they're hardly safe, indoctrinates them, brainwashes them, fails to teach them anything. Would you tell me, please, what the justification is for that system, which has only existed in the United States for about 100 years? Prior to 1900, this idea of universal compulsory schooling under the management of mega unions and under political management with uh, indoctrination flowing down from central authorities was unknown. It did not exist 100 years ago, and it is time to, oh, here's a favorite left-wing word, reimagine education. I'm going to reimagine it, right? So let's all reimagine it. And let's imagine that parents are charged in, instead of bureaucrats and, and that the money is following the child rather than the unions and the special interests. Let's resolve here in 2022 to make educational freedom a reality here. And let's not forget as we begin this year, that those of you who are listening to this podcast are uniquely politically aware. Let us not forget our special duty to speak on behalf of the poor and the disadvantaged who are unable to speak for themselves. These folks 
and their children are caught in, in a low-hanging class, underclass, which is characterized by poverty, ignorance, crime, lack of advantage, lack of mobility. And the key to them getting out in America is the same as it has always been. It's the same reason why I was able to get out. Most of you were able to get out because somehow, somewhere, you got access to a quality education, and that made the difference in your lives. Let's not forget uh, the, the kids in the inner city. That's why we're here. That's why we're passionate. And their future, for better or for worse, ladies and gentlemen, is one that we share. Well, look, that's the end of the introductory sermon here. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Don't forget to go to californiaschoolchoice.org, sign up, be there, get involved. This is on you. Nobody else is going to do it. Believe me, if anybody, if the people in power, the parties, the politicians, uh, religious leaders, if they were ever going to solve this problem, they would have. They didn't. It's up to you and to me. So let's get busy. Join us here. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we will have the famous Professor Victor Davis Hansen on to discuss his new book, the dying citizen. California schools rank 48th nationally, even though we spent $20,000 per year per student, that's $500,000 per classroom. This system is nothing but a fraud, a hustle, and a con. It's time to put school choice on the ballot. Hello, this is Mike Alexander, Chairman of Californians for School Choice. Under the Educational Freedom Act initiative, parents will decide where their children go to school. Each child will receive a yearly tuition credit of $14,000 to attend a private or religious school of their choice and save any money left over for college, vocational training, or other qualified expense. To sign the petition and learn how you can help, go to californiaschoolchoice.org. That's californiaschoolchoice.org. californiaschoolchoice.org. And remember, it's your kids, your money, and your choice. Committee major funding from Dale Broom. Back with you, everybody. Uh, this is the Voice of Choice, our weekly uh, broadcast, episode number three. And we're very happy to have with us this afternoon uh, Dr. Victor Davis Hansen, who is, I am sure, no stranger to those of you who are tuning in to this broadcast. Uh, Dr. Hansen is here to discuss with me his uh, brand new book, The Dying Citizen. And I think Kevin will pop that up on the screen here so that you can see it available at Amazon and probably a zillion other uh, outlets, but you really want to get it. And, uh, I'm not going to tell you what the book is about because we've got the author here and I don't want to fail the test by getting it wrong. So we'll let the professor give us the answers here. And as you know, Dr. Hansen is a well-known commentator, uh, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, frequent lecturer everywhere, seen at the Claremont Institute, uh, you name it. Uh, he, of course, has a Ph.D. in classics, a former professor, I think, at what, Santa Cruz, uh, Fresno State, uh, and uh, every other place uh, in between. And I feel a special kinship with you, Dr. Hansen, because like so many of a certain era, uh, I took many years of Latin and Greek in, uh, in high school and uh, even in college. My Latin is still okay, but my Greek, not Good. so much, <laughs> but yours is fantastic, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, you know, we're, we're, we're happy uh, you know, to have you. So welcome, Dr. Thank you. Uh, Hansen. Uh, Thank you. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about your new book, The Dying Citizen. Well, I had some general themes, and it was written before COVID until the last Oh, two chapters were during the, the first initial. And then I have an epilogue, epilogue to update it. But I was very worried that people failed to recognize how fragile citizenship is, how rare it is in history. Mm 
It wasn't, it came very late to civilization 2,500 years ago. And rather than 7,000 when civilization began in the Near East. And there were certain requisites or requirements for it. You needed a large middle class. In the book, I suggest that the middle class is losing aggregate share of income, student debt, family dissolution, etc. It also required uh, a, a physical defined space. So that citizenship was such a fluid concept, it, it would be diluted if, unless people had definable borders where they could reinforce or reverberate, echo their, their customs and traditions. Athens, Sparta, Rome, all of these ancient civilizations that had constitutional governments and citizenship had very keen uh, appreciation that they had a separate space. And I feel that we're, and I think, the first 11 months of this administration has borne that out. We don't have a border on the South anymore. Right. Um, then the third challenge was always that there were different classes, tribes uh, in the history of citizenship, and there had to be a, a absorption of a common civic identity that you, if you're going to be American or you're going to be British or you're going to be Athenian or... Uh, Theban or Roman, that meant that you could no longer belong to your particular tribe as your official identity or your prime identity. And we in America call it the melting pot or the brutal bargain where you gave up your ethnic identity when you arrived and then you were enriched by American identity. And if you were willing to undergo that bargain, then you had as much right uh, to the American experience as somebody who came over on the Mayflower. Yes. And in colonial times. So those were sort of organic challenges to citizenship because all of those three elements are under assault now. The border and uh, identity politics is, is assaulting the idea of unity. And then very quickly, I had what I called the postmodern challenges, the second half of the book. And these are mm -hmm. not organic from the bottom up, but from the top down. And one is the administrative state. I call those the unelected. These yes. are people like James Comey, Mark Milley, Anthony Fauci, uh, John Brennan, James Clapper. I'm just naming them off the top of my head that I discussed that have enormous amount of power, but they're not subject to audit or censure if they don't tell the truth under under oath or they mislead the people. But And they exercise power that cannot be audited or recalled. And this growth of this administrative state is something... You know, it's been going on, but it's accelerated. And whether it's a regulator that comes on your farm and finds you for a mud puddle and calls that a, a navigational waterway, or whether it's uh, a parent that has no control over critical race theory being taught but because of a non-elected school administrators. Right. And then I have a, the final two on the evolutionaries. I think they're, that, that chapter is very germane now because these are people yeah. who don't like the system. So they want to pack the, the nine-person court. They want to get rid of the filibuster, the electoral college, the national, uh, the idea of a national voting law that supersedes state legislatures, uh, balloting rules and, and regulations. And they're always trying to evolve us beyond the Constitution. And then finally, there's cosmopolitans. These are globalists who feel their primary identity, mostly by coastal elites, belongs to the world community, the UN the World Health Organization, International Criminal Court, but in a transnational body they feel has more legitimacy than the people of the United States. Yes. Well, you know, for everybody out there, uh, the, uh, I read the, uh, uh, like 80% of it, uh, a remarkable book, and the Tour de Force uh, uh, in reviewing treating uh, the subject of citizenship in the overall context of uh, current affairs uh, going back, what, about 50 years or thereabouts, you pick it up at various points throughout our history yeah. and, of course, through classical history. And uh, when you got into the bit on the evolutionaries, uh, that is the administrative state that uh, a lot of the conservatives have referred to, we have this paragraph that I think all of you will enjoy. Uh, this is uh, from Dr. Uh, uh, Hansen here at page 218. As we will see, 
the mostly elite and formal efforts to change the Constitution, whether by systematically nullifying federal laws, using the courts and the bureaucracy to circumvent the will of Congress, or ignoring or replacing parts of the Constitution itself, share the same ideological genesis that have led to the ad hoc diminution of the middle class, the conflation of citizenship with residency, and the multicultural tribalism discussed previously. The common theme of them, once more, is an effort to erode traditions and laws in order to mandate equity and to empower an alliance of the elite, of the elite and the poor at the expense of the power and influence of the middle class, unquote. I thought that was an extraordinary paragraph and, and, and a useful summary of, of your entire thesis. And I'll have to say that when I was when I saw the title of your book, Dying Citizen, uh, I was thinking of it in, in our own political activist terms of, uh, of political apathy. But in fact, your analysis is much more fundamental. And you go to uh, you discuss the systematic attack on the citizenship uh, of, of the republic, but particularly the deliberate attack on the middle class. And, and you really put citizenship and the middle class together. Could could you expand on that? Yeah, I think there's two elements that are new. I mean, the middle class has always been recognized as both necessary for constitutional government and always in danger. But one of them is geographical, that while I don't want to generalize, globalization took our two coastal strips, the one from Seattle to San Diego, the other from Boston to Miami. One looks out at the EU and Latin America, one looks out at Asia. And with people that had particular skills, media, law, commerce, finance, high tech, they found themselves the beneficiaries of a suddenly 8 billion person market. The people in the interior that were the farmers or miners or timber people or gas or oil or construction, assembly, manufacturing, what they did could more easily be outsourced, and it was, or offshore. So we saw a, a, a terrible diminution in employment in places like from Youngstown, Ohio to Fresno, California. Mm -hmm. And this was, the, the coastal elite was oblivious to it. They were not worried about it. So the cultural bookend of that is that, and I quoted a lot of uh, elites, what they said about the middle class. There was a whole vocabulary of disparagement. Clingers, deplorables, irredeemables, dregs, crazies, scum, etc. And filthy, yeah. We remember Lisa Page and Peter Strzok's reference to the Walmart crowd as smelly, yeah. smelly. Right. But but I think my point was that the middle class in the eyes of the elite lacks the romance of the poor, the distant poor, and they don't have the culture of the elite. And so in their way of thinking, they're grubby people who have just enough money to, to, to waste it on snowmobiles or, you know, uh, jet skis, but they don't have the taste to acquire, to use money in a way that's refined. And yet they're not empathetic and they're, in, and they're too near the wealthy classes. They're not like the distant poor. They keep to their side of town or, the, or they're distant and they could be romanticized. And so, and that's, that's not new. That happens in a lot of societies. And so when the middle class starts to erode and their, their share of the national wealth the last two years has gone down to about 25%. Yes. 1% uh, of the population owns more national wealth than the entire 88 mil, million households of the middle class. And that, that's kind of dangerous. And it's a product, I think, mostly of trends in globalization and federal policies. Right. Let, let's deal with, uh, you know, yeah. international economic trends. Obviously, we play a role in it, our own national policy and foreign policy. Economic policy certainly affects that. But our own domestic policy, has that played a greater role in creating that uh, or producing that disparity uh, between the 1% uh, that international economic factors? I think it has. I think 
that there was either indifference or encouragement by both Bush administrations and the Clinton and Obama administrations to export, outsource offshore jobs in places like Mexico, but particularly China, where we thought we were beyond manufacturing or assembly. And we found out that those were critical industries during the COVID crisis mm -hmm. and supply chain. So that there was an encouragement there was a rewriting of laws that made it much easier for wealthy people to report income as capital gains at a much lower tax uh, rate than what the middle class had to pay on strict income tax levels in the upper middle class. The one thing that's not talked about is that when the federal government intervened and began to guarantee student loans mm -hmm. and the question of moral hazard became the, the problem of the, of the federal government rather than the universities, then we, we ended up what we would think we ended up with, with $1.7 trillion in aggregate student debt that the university willingly encouraged with the idea that it would have no hazard because it was not going to be financially liable. And therefore, if the right. government backed these loans up, 30% of which are defaulting, Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it could raise tuition, for example, higher than the annual rate of uh, inflation and did so. Yes. And yet the, the degrees and they also had administrative blow, et cetera. They would not be hiring right now thousands of, di of diversity, equity and inclusion administrators if they had to sign their own loans and tell an undergraduate. Right. Exactly. Uh, when you graduate you're not going to have a competitive degree in sociology or gender studies or whatever, and you're not going to be able to pay this loan back. Right. And we want our money back. But if they had to do that, they would be very uh, frugal in the number of non-teaching positions they hired. So, and that had, that had a very important role in America, because when you look at statistics on the age of when people marry, the degree to which people do marry, the number of children, if they do have children, you can see, and then the first age when people buy homes, you can see that we're suffering from what Tocqueville called prolonged adolescence. Yes. We're, we're making people 17 and 18, 19, 20, all the way up into, we're taking what used to be a productive cycle of people getting married in their early 20s, getting into the system, uh, confident, buying homes, having children, that's now something in your 30s and 40s. I yeah. think student debt has a lot to do with it. It, it does. It's huge. And also uh, the incredible growth over the last 50 years of this institution that we call higher education, quote unquote. Yes, uh, and, 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 and it is uh, to characterize it as higher education begs the question especially when we see what the quality and the utility of these degrees are. Uh, they're, just, uh, they're just not that great, and they certainly don't translate uh, into employment, much less into compensation that's enough to repay the indebtedness. And, and, and uh, you know, it's interesting, you had the one quote from de Tocqueville, because I was unfamiliar with it, but I've had exactly that same conversation with many parents here recently, and we have all deplored this prolonged adolescence that we have uh, for, for youngsters going to this place called college for whatever reason. And this is why graduates of even very good high schools are now foregoing higher education, uh, uh, so-called, or the going to college, quote-unquote, uh, because uh, the value proposition just isn't there. And of course, in an era when we are dealing with, uh, with uh, uh, especially young girls reaching uh, sexual uh, maturity, puberty, earlier and earlier and earlier, and, and youngsters now at the time uh, that they need to be dating and forming families are, are now it, it delayed four, five, six, or even up to 10 years. They can't form families. So, and you, you did a, a great job of pointing out our declining birth rate, and that cannot be separated from government policies of high taxes, lower jobs, uh, the systematic destruction uh, of the middle class. Is it your view, doctor, that this destruction of the, of the middle class it is, uh, uh, is an actual policy of, of many people in, in our country, or is it just 
uh, the effective misguided policies? I think what's happened politically, because that's a political question, Yes, is the parties have sort of flipped. When I was growing up, I lived in a Democratic household that worshipped mm-hmm. Harry Truman and JFK. But the Democratic propaganda then was the the Republican Party was a bunch of blue-stocking, silk-stocking white guys on golf courses. Right. That was always going to be a minority, and they were always protecting capital. And the Democratic Party was the working class, the lunch bucket group. Yes. And unions. And now what's happened is the Democratic Party, as we saw with Mark Zuckerberg's infusion of $419 million into the last election, it's the party of the bicoastal upper, upper middle class and very wealthy. If you look yes. at the top Fortune 400 and go down the names, you, see, you learn two things. Most of the names now are left wing and most of the uh, businesses that made them their wealth are not timber, mining, farming, construction, manufacturing, gas. They are things like high tech, media, insurance, finance. Right. And so the Democratic Party has become the party of the very, very wealthy and the very poor. And it has abandoned that middle class. And I think it took some time for the Republicans. And we didn't really see that happen until 2016, where Donald Trump came in and basically shocked his 16 primary rivals by saying he was going to appeal to formerly Democratic working class people in the nation's interior. And the other candidates didn't quite pick up on what he was saying. And maybe he said it in an uncouth or crude way and he distracted attention. But the point I'm making is now the Republican Party is kind of rebooted itself in the same way the Democrat. It's a populist, nationalist, middle class party. And it's not talking about abolishing Social Security the same way or it's not talking about let's lower the capital gains, although it, it agrees with that. But its issues now are uh, can people buy a home? Affordability. Inflation's hurting the middle class. Yeah. Education should be school choice or homeschooling. Uh, it's taking on unions, uh, but not all unions. Teachers unions, it is. So, and uh, it's, it's got a, so that, that flip-flopping, has, it took some time for the middle class to have an advocate because it's been orphaned for 20 years. The Democratic Party became the party of very wealthy and identity politics, hyphenated Americans. And the Republican Party under Romney and the Bushes and McCain, they didn't pick up on that opportunity. And now I think it's on, I think people are saying that, lo and behold, the, not the Democrats, but the Republicans have said, we can create a middle class solidarity that will trump or override uh, ethnic and racial separatism and division. And if that's true, if you can get Hispanics and African-Americans and Asians all within the lower middle and upper middle class all on the same page about public schools, about uh, education, about energy costs, about taxation, I think you have a very powerful way of saving the middle class. What do you think for the, uh, and, and I do want to talk to you a little bit about uh, uh, school choice, but overall, um what do you think the path forward is for those of us who find ourselves in that category? That is a dying citizen, uh, somebody that's being murdered or starved slowly by the system of elites. What is, uh, uh, besides voting for Trump or a similar candidate, uh, what is our path forward politically, do you think? Yeah, I think what's happened to us, the dying citizen, is that people in the last 20 years have kind of had a monastery of the mind. They looked at this popular culture and the direction of the country and they said, I'm checking out. And Mm -hmm. by that, I mean, they said, NBA, I don't watch anymore. I don't like this unsportsmanlike attitude. NFL, I'm getting tired of that. I don't watch sitcoms anymore because they're trashy on on network television. Uh, I don't read the New York Times. I don't read the Washington Post. Haven't been to a Hollywood movie in a theater in 10 years. This is what I hear all the time. And so I don't listen to rap music. I don't care. I don't watch commercials. And they have gone into their own cocoons. Yes. And I think they've abdicated. And we know that because 
there were millions of voters who dropped out in 2008 and 2016, 2012. And I think that was the wrong attitude. And I think now people yes. are realizing that if you drop out of the culture rather than fight it, then uh, you're, there's no way out. You can't retreat to Wyoming or you can't retreat to the Sierra Nevada mountains. They're going to come in a, they're going to come after you or you're going to have to deal with them. You may not want them, but they want you and they yes. will find you. So I think now there's a better attitude is if they're going to cancel us out and dox us and boycott, then you're going to unfortunately have to fight fire with fire. And you're going to have to say, you know what, if you say these things, I'm going to sue you or I'm going to cancel you out. I don't want, or I'm, and I don't, I say that with some hesitation, but this idea you play by the markers of Queensbury rules and you have a Jacobin Bolshevik neo-socialist hardcore left that feels their exalted ends justify any means necessary hasn't worked. And I mean that literally at the local level where people get involved in their communities under the Obama administration, they picked up 1400 offices nationwide, but on the national level, the Republican Party has not won 51% of the vote since George H.W. Bush did it in 1988, and they've lost seven out of eight popular votes. So whatever, they're not getting involved. They're not getting involved, and they have to get involved because we're an extremist now, and if you don't get involved, somebody's going to get involved for you, and you're not going to like what that involvement will be. Thank you. I want you to cut that quote out uh, because this... I've been involved actively uh, in politics for a while. My story is not important, but I can say this. Over the last three years, and particularly over the last 90 days, as we have been circulating our petition for school choice, which is, which is clearly revolutionary and will put parents back in charge of education and curricula, we've got a lot of protections built in. But we... we uh, we encounter uh, this apathy, uh, this uh, uh, the the sense of hopelessness, the sense of futility, and more often than not, people uh, will tell us, "Well, look, Mike, if we take that money from government, there'll be strings attached." And uh, we we always say to them, "Well, let's reverse. Let's let's just state the proposition more clearly, on your part." It, it, that is, if I don't, or if my school or church doesn't take this money, the government will let me alone, and they won't come in to try to no. tell me what to think. That's just not true, is it, Doctor? No, it, it's not. It, I think a lot of people think, well, if I don't take this money, then the money will be returned to the Treasury, and anybody who's worked in a bureaucracy knows that's not true. What will happen is that fight is a different fight. That's at the legislative level. Once yeah. level, once those funds have been allotted, they will either be spent or they'll find a way to spend them. So when you say, I don't want to take these funds, they will go to some cause you don't approve of. And, th and that's what I think everybody understands. They think, I don't want any trouble. I don't want to get involved. And But my point is, the left is not the old Democratic Party now. It is a radical, evasive, uh, invasive, excuse me, a radical, invasive, uh, revolutionary movement that wants to get your children in first grade. And by the time they leave high school, they have certain ideas about climate change, transgenderism, gay marriage. And if you object to that, that's not going to if you just say, well, I don't I'll, I'll teach them at home. It's not going to be enough. Or when they go to college, if you just say, you know, I'm just going to send them to the state U, I don't know much about it, or I'm going to write a check as an alumni to a university, that type of passe uh, attitude won't work. If you're going to give money to a university, you better target it or not give it. If you're going to send your child to school, you better do some investigation and expect a, a particular result unless you can guarantee they're going to get a traditional education. Same thing with high schools. Yeah. And so uh, I think everybody in the middle and the right have been uh, lackadaisical. And I think they've understood, they wake up one morning and they say, you know, I dropped out. I didn't know what Hollywood was producing. My God, I looked, turned on the NBA and, and I can't believe the language or the fistfights or the pro-Chinese propaganda coming from it. Oh my gosh, the head of American Airlines or, or uh, gosh, the head of 
Delta Airlines said, just asking for an ID, like I see every day at the grocery store, that's racist if you want to vote. Where do these guys come from? Well, they've been there the whole time and they're getting more powerful, but we never held them to account because we said, you know what? I wouldn't want to boycott Delta just because the CEO says I'm racist because I want to have an ID to vote. But the point is he's doing that because the left has told him either you come out and say that IDs are racist to vote or we're going to boycott you. And yeah, he knows exactly. the right. He knows the right. And the conservatives don't believe in those tactics. I would anyway. like to uh, take some a part of what you said and trace it back to the notion of the dying citizen. <clears throat> uh, we have a, a unique circumstance uh, in, in history where the government itself is training and indoctrinating the kinds of citizens that it wants. And, yeah. and, and this apparatus is not really functioning so much as a political party. I, I think it is a, uh, is, a, is a government institution, an oligarchy of its com- comprised of itself, operating under the, uh, the aegis, there's a Greek word, right, uh, of a political party. Uh, yeah, I think the one, yeah, I, I agree. like that. Well, the Department of Homeland Security, Mr. Mayorkas, is one of the most powerful men in the United States. And when he decided with the consent of Joe Biden to open the, the border and, and two million people came across, and now you're learning that 800,000 of them by fiat have been declared eligible to vote in New York City here illegally and residing illegally. So we have people that we don't even know who they are, but they have a, they have such power and budgetary clout yeah. that they can change the, our very lives. And we we don't. Anyway. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I've got to get going at 2.30. Yes, sir. Well, yeah. hey, thank you, doctor, okay. uh, for giving us this half hour. You're fantastic. Thank you for supporting uh, School Choice and signing I the do. petition. We, we appreciate it. And we look forward to the, uh, the opportunity uh, to see you again. In the meanwhile, everybody out there, don't forget to pick up his book. And Kevin will show you the picture, The Dying Citizen by Perfector, Professor Victor Davis Hansen, classicist and farmer from Madera, California. It's Thank Sam- you very much. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank- Bye. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, wasn't that a fantastic interview uh, with uh, Dr. Hansen? Uh, he is extraordinary. He's a Californian, and he's one of us in, in so many, many, many ways. Be sure to pick up his book, but bear in mind his admonition that we all have to be active. We'll discuss that more at the conclusion of the show, and right now we're going to take a break, and next up will be Government Grifter of the Week with our special reporter at large, Juan Tierra. Trapped by their zip codes, the poorest children are denied access to a quality education that will enable them to break the cycle of poverty and take their rightful place in our society. This is real systemic racism. It's time to put school choice on the ballot. Hello, this is Mike Alexander, president of Californians for School Choice. Under the Educational Freedom Act initiative, parents, not zip codes, will decide where their children go to school. Parents wanting to leave the disastrous public school system will receive a yearly tuition credit of $14,000 per child to attend a private or religious school of their choice and save any money left over for college, vocational training, or other qualified expense. To sign the petition and learn how you can help, go to CaliforniaSchoolChoice.org. That's CaliforniaSchoolChoice.org. And remember, it's your kids, your money, and your choice. Committee major funding from Dale Broom. Ladies and gentlemen, all you school choice supporters out there everywhere, welcome back to part two of The Voice of Choice, our favorite segment of the week, Government Grifter of the Week, with our secret reporter broadcasting here from a bunker somewhere in Los Angeles under his nom de podcast, Juan Tierra. How are you today, Juan? Just fine, Mike. I have to, <laughs> I have have? to try to... Huh? What do you have, have for to- I, pardon? Well, go ahead. I have to uh, try to uh, keep some veneer of anonymity in my left-wing neighborhood. 
Well, while it's uh, it, 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 they say they're open-minded and tolerant, oh. uh, except when it comes to your political and economic views. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the bunker there somewhere. Well, we'll give them a false location. We'll make it Hillsborough, California. How's that? That far enough away? <laughs> a little too ritzy for my blood, but thank you. <laughs> hey, well, what do you have for us today, Juan? Well, uh, this is our second Government Grifter Award, uh, Educational Grifter Award of the Week. Yeah. Now, the goal of these presentations is to expose financial waste within California's massive educational bureaucracies. It's a lot of low-hanging fruit, obviously. In our initial broadcast, we looked at the Montclair, Ontario School District, an underperforming and heavily Hispanic minority school district in North San Bernardino County. Now, despite its low, low scores in math and reading proficiency, that district's, district's superintendent is the highest paid in the state. Woo. Last three years, $600,000 in salary and benefits. Woo. And he was our only and sole standalone nominee. Now today, <laughs> we'll revert to our old Radio Free Los Angeles series of nominees and have three. Do we have the drum roll this week, by the way? I don't, Yeah, well, we have a drum roll. Kevin, Kevin here, he's going to put it in here. So Let's just go. think of that drum roll. We'll pause. Brrr. Okay, go. Okay. <laughs> now, today's sources, and I always give them, and, uh, and this is a great one, transparentcalifornia.com. It's a, it's a wonderful source. Yes. Also, publicschoolreview.com. Our main source today is the article called Woke Elementary from the January 13th last year by Christopher Rufo, a terrific investigative reporter. Get him at the Manhattan Institute or City Journal. Oh, yeah. Look, yeah. Look it up. He's tops. Now, we're going to look at a highly, another highly minority district, Cupertino Union, in Santa Clara County, the Bay Area, South, South Bay Area, Dumby, San Jose. Now, you might not have heard of Cupertino, but you've heard of Apple Inc., and mm-hmm. that's where they're headquartered. Cupertino is one of the founding cities of Silicon Valley. It's, uh, Apple has over 25,000 employees in Cupertino and the surrounding area. Major, largest employer. It's had a reputation of, of a great school, a lot of great schools, including Meyerholtz, M-E-Y-H-O-L-T-Z. This school district is very, very wealthy and high tech, obviously, Apple employees. Medium home price, $2.3 million. Wow. Average median household income, $172,000. Very educated, 80% of its residents have BA degrees or higher. Very impressive. The school itself, 760 grades in grades uh, in grades K, kindergarten through fifth. And it's the top 1% of the schools in the state. Math proficiency, 90%, more than double the state average of 41%, which is pretty low, obviously. Yeah. Reading and uh, language arts, 89%. Much higher than 51%, which is state average, also not very good. Student student to uh, student teacher teacher radio ratio, I'm bumbling here, is 25.1, to a little higher than 23.1, which is a state average. Wow. Population of 30 teachers remains stable the past five years. Minority enrollment is 93% of the student body. 93%. 93%. And that's in the Most of that school is district. heavily is hev- yeah is heavily Asian. Yeah. The state average is seventy seven percent. This is ninety three, but this is overwhelmingly Asian. The two largest groups: Chinese, twenty eight percent; East Indians or South South Asians, to be more politically correct, twenty two percent. Then Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, mixed race, right. etc. Okay. So what could go wrong? Well. <laughs> The Cupertino School District made national news last January when third graders at Meyerholtz were forced to, quote, deconstruct their racial identities, unquote, and rate themselves on a power and privilege scale. They had to create an identity map with their race, class, gender, religion, and family structure. The teacher then instructed them they were lived in a, quote, dominant culture of white, middle-class, cisgender, educated, able-bodies, Christian English speakers. Also, there was a short presentation on transgenderism and non-binary sexuality. 
As These third are third graders. graders right? Third graders. They're third yeah. graders. Come on. So what was the point of this exercise? Using the principle of intersectionality, it was to determine who was oppressor and who was oppressed. Yeah. What you ask is the definition of intersectionality. I can see the question forming on your brow there. <laughs> I'm <laughs> quoting. This, this is the quote. It's the acknowledgement that everyone has their own unique experiences of discrimination and oppression. Yeah. We must consider everything and anything that can marginalize people. Gender, race, class, sexual orientation, and physical ability. This is pure, unadulterated, unfettered, abject Marxism. Yeah. As opposed to the American individualism, value, and judging people by the content of their character. The good news is that this incident caused a parental revolt <laughs> led by Asian Americans. Right. One parent stated, quote, we were shocked. They are basically teaching racism to my eight-year-old. Another parent, and this is the good one, who grew up in China, said, quote, growing up in China, I learned this many times. The outcome is the family will be ripped apart. Husband hates wife, children hate parents. I think it's already happening here. Mm. Duh. When the school's principal, Jennifer Lashier, was challenged, she stated the training was not part of the formal curriculum, but the process of daily learning by a certified teacher. Mm -hmm. Half a dozen families protested this progressive Marxist program. The administration finally agreed to suspend it. More positive news is that Asian Americans are tired of being an inconvenient minority and are beginning to fight back. Right. It's hard to believe that this highly rated school and the majority of the students are people of color, have very high rates of academic achievement, anyone is truly oppressed. In fact, although a student body is over 90% white, non-white, it's one of the most advantaged schools in the state. Now, what are the tax-paying citizens of Meyerholtz getting for their money? Well, obviously a dose of progressive Marxism instead of math, which is not only a divisive, but a waste of time and dangerous. And now it's time for our three nominees for the Education <laughs> Government okay, Gift of the Week Award. Okay, now they're coming out of nominees the salaries and benefits. Okay, oh, okay. all right. Uh, number number one. one. Number one, the third grade teacher, as yet anonymous, unnamed, who subjected her class to this material. So I looked at the average, average elementary school teachers, roughly 70000 in pay, other benefits in pay, twenty. Total $90,000. Nominee number two, the principal, Jennifer Lashier, regular pay $83,000. Other pay and benefits, 27, total $110,000. Let's go up to the top of the food chain. <laughs> District superintendent, Greg Baker, he's got his very well. Regular pay, $296,000. Other pay Whoa. and benefits, $77,000 total. $393,000. Wow. wow. Now, let's, I mean, let's face it. With these kind of parents, and this kind of academic excellence, this is not to me that tough. So why throw in the Marxist and the progressive stuff? Right. Anyway, you ready for our winner? I'm ready. All right. Yeah, we have another uh, a drum roll here, please. And the winner is the principal, Jennifer Lashier. For stonewalling parents, voicing this Marxism and allowing this Marxism to take place. Right. Okay. You know. So what we, what we have here? Thank you, John. That was a ba da da bum ba bum. All right. You know, what I like about your criteria is that I would have said, "All right, uh, we're going to go with uh, Government Grifter of the Week. Will be the guy that makes the most." And that would have been too easy. You went. To the, the government grift of the week was not only taking a lot of money, but doing even more damage for the money. So we were getting uh, so 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 her metrics were off the chart by that measure because they were not only indoctrinating the children, she was carrying it out. She was standing tall on behalf of the left and lying to parents and treating them stupid. Now that's got to be a real challenge. We stopped to think about you know, these kids' performance uh, and, and their parents' performance up there, you're, you're talking about really sharp parents, engineers, scientists, 
uh, the best of breed uh, up there in the neighborhood, and you get to try to lie to them. Well, you've got to be you. You got to have a lot more on the ball than that low grade moron they call principal. I'm telling you, that's. Uh, uh, but she was willing to go out there and take it for the team and earn it, right? Initially, yes. Yeah. What does she do afterwards? Uh, is she still around, still in place? Or uh, I can she, look it up. I suspect she is. Who, 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 or is she who working for Amazon? Who, who gets fired in that system? Yeah, who gets fired? But, I'm sorry. I stink. But, but, look, but, but, but look at this scenario. Kid comes home from third grade and said, how's school today? Said, well, we had a test today in math. Oh, how'd you do? Oh, I'm not sure. What? Because it's kind of a funny test. We didn't do any math, really. Right. Did you do? Well, we, we, we had a test and we plugged in things and race and sex and family structure and income. And we're trying to figure out whether we're oppressed or oppressors. Now, yeah. maybe it's a non-white female. Yes. It lives in a nice house with a nice car. So we're well, oppressors you know, or oppressed. <laughs> well, you know, John, unfortunately, you weren't able to hear uh, our interview uh, with uh, Dr. Hansen, uh, Victor Davis, that is. Uh, a man that uh, uh, that you're a great fan of, but we talked about his new book, The Dying Citizen, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I recommend it to you and to everybody. Uh, it's a very broad book. It covers a tremendous number of taf uh, topics and is a good precy of the last 50 years of government policies and its net effect uh, on, the, on the middle class and the average citizen. I won't go back into his book, but one of the things that he and I uh, discussed is is whether the citizen is merely dying or being murdered, uh, <laughs> right? And uh, and when we look at what's happening in these schools here, we see that the citizen is not someone who stands outside the system, independent of it, uh, is first of all a system that is run. Uh, that is of, by, and for the government itself and the bureaucracies and the people uh, who run it, who are intent on creating a generation of citizens of their liking, programming these robots who will behave as, they, uh, as the government wants them, and more importantly, to vote as they, they require. And, and this level of indoctrination is not only intended to get them to get their heads straight. I don't know. Straight is still a good word, uh, <laughs> uh, but at any rate, uh, try to get their heads right, uh, get their minds straight as to what they're supposed to do uh, and how they're supposed to, to vote. And then at the same time, by shifting to uh, these uh, softer uh, areas here of indoctrination to the exclusion of substantial or, or substantive courses, we are also killing them off in another way. We're lowering their performance. Uh, it, it's almost as if they took these stand-up performing Asian kids, uh, whether Indians, Pakistanis, South Asians, how, whatever label you want to put on them, or, or Asian kids from uh, you know the rest of Asia, Chinese and whatnot, Japanese, whatever it is, it almost it seems as if they're trying to hobble them, uh, uh, make them start the race 10 yards behind everybody else and make sure that nobody finishes. Yeah, uh, yeah this is a deliberate destruction of the individual and the child. And this, uh, it, it, this example brought to us by by John today, excuse me, by one, uh, Tierra today, uh, is, is a perfect example of why we need school choice and why we need to put parents in charge, because based upon the reaction of the parents, we know that they don't agree with it. And can you imagine what the response would have been up there? There never would have been a, 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 uh, a, a big, protests at the school board meeting. There wouldn't have been any signs. There wouldn't have been any protests. The only thing that you would have heard would be the sound that those panic bars make in the school when the kids hit the exits with the parents. That's what would have happened. Just like it happens. Nobody goes to GM to protest bad cars. They just sell it and buy a Honda, sell it, buy a Toyota. That's, uh, that's how we protest in a free society, in a market-based uh, society. Well, well, one, 
Uh, do you have anything else to add to what you had today? It was a remarkable example. Actually, I'm uh, starting to read a book, and here it is called The Inconvenient Minor- uh, Minority. Oh, and who's that? Right, right, well, it's a man named, got to watch this, Kenny XU. Got to watch it here. X, <laughs> oh, you, XU. Zoom. XU. Yeah. Subtitled. Sounds- Sounds like he's uh, Asian, Chinese? Uh, Yes, he's Chinese, actually. Okay. Attack on Asian-American excellence and the fight for meritocracy. Love it. This starts out with this Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia. Yeah. Which is probably, that's amazing, it's still a a school named that in Virginia, by the way. Yeah. It's the top-ranked high school in the country. Mm Mm-hmm. And as years went on, it was getting more and more Asian, up to 76%. Yeah. Now, the bean counters didn't like that. (laughs) They started Pretty playing Chinese, games, doing, right. doing, doing, doing a lottery, this and that. They they actually got the percentage down to 54%, but there's a lot of pushback. This yeah. is Virginia again, like the uh, Yunkin thing in, in Virginia. Well, let's get him on. We need to talk to him. Uh, Mr. Zhu or Zhu, however you pronounce it. Uh, we'll have to track him down and oh, I'll, I'll, find out I'll, how to pronounce I'll, his I'll, name. I'll, I'll, I'll send the material. It's, uh, just, yeah, just started good. reading it. It's very good. Love it. And, Love and here's, it. Here's, another, here's another little zinger. Yeah. Uh, Wall Street Journal, which I read every day, six days a week anyway, they had a, a, an article about the, the Harvard, Harvard case and the Asians being stiffed, okay? Yeah. Great, great letter from a local guy. The only Caltech's honest admissions, he says, the only U.S. educational institution that gives Asians a fair shake is Caltech in Pasadena. Mm. All that matters is pure merit. No preference given to athletes, legacy, development cases, or race. As a result, Asians constitute more than 40% of Caltech's undergraduate student body. That policy has paid off handsomely, with 45 alumni and faculty awarded Nobel Prizes, six awarded the Turing Award in in computer science, which is the Nobel equivalent of uh, Island Turing, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what these people are up against. Now, back in the day, you used to say, well, Howard all back in the day, Harvard discriminated against Jews. They had quotas for Jews. We all know that was bad. Right. Uh, terrible. We saw that 30s and 40s. They were terrible. Well, look at it now. It's doing yeah, the same thing to stop. Asians. It's, that's it's right. Now it's the Asians. It's got to stop. Uh, that's right. It's got to stop. It's equity, equity stuff. That's right. Well, Juan, it's uh, great to have you on uh, again this afternoon. Thank you for uh, participating. And, uh, you know, we'll continue the conversation in episode four of uh, The Voice of uh, Choice uh, next week. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you, know, we, uh, you, know, you had a chance to hear uh, Juan Tierra uh, reporting on uh, events in the Cupertino School District. And uh, we're, uh, we announced that the winner of the Government Grifter of the Week Award is the principal up there. Tune into the rest of this episode. Go back and listen uh, to Juan uh, for, for the details. Well, that wraps up our, our podcast for this week. We're probably a little bit over an hour, not too much, uh, but uh, we don't want to uh, impose upon your your hospitality on a Sunday or Monday or whenever you're able to uh, listen to this. But uh, you know, it posts every Sunday morning early so that you have the, uh, the links. And I want to thank our uh, producer uh, here, uh, Mr. Kevin Campbell, uh, who puts all of this uh, together for us and makes this uh, possible. And uh, thank our hosts here at uh, radio station KRLA AM 870, The Answer in Glendale, California. It's been great broadcasting here today. Now, don't forget, we've got 90 days to get our petitions in, 90 days to get 1 million valid signatures. We're looking to you to do it. When you listen to Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, you listen to what's going on in the schools as related by Juan Tierra here, you know what you should do, and this is up to up to you. Remember, if we say, and uh, as we believe, that there are uh, uh, that our government is by, of, and for the uh, you know the people, uh, that our government derives its consent from the people, then if we believe that, we have to accept responsibility for what's going on. And most importantly, accept responsibility for changing it. And that begins with taking back our children, their hearts, their minds, and their souls. And to closing, I want to remind you 
to remember it's your children, it's your money, and it's your choice. This is Mike Alexander, the voice of choice. And uh, we, uh, if you want to correspond with me, I can be reached at Mike at CaliforniaSchoolChoice.org. And of course, that is the website, CaliforniaSchoolChoice.org. Thanks again. See you next week. Voice of Choice podcast ad paid for by Californians for School Choice. Committee major funding from Dale Broom.